Peace, peace. You know what it is. It's your man, S-K-Y-Z-O-O, Skyzoo, live out the borough. And you are now logged on, tuned in, and tapped in to Fly Fidelity. Hip-hop only, baby. Let's do it. First, First I say, say, what we're gonna, gonna do. do. Then, then you, you say, say, I don't know. What do you wanna do? What we're gonna do, what you wanna, wanna do. do. I have an idea. You're gonna dig this. The Fly Fidelity Podcast is, is the solution. It's the best. Check it out. You wanna get super fly, fly. Details just ahead. Do you love credible content, but, but, but hate how long you have to wait? And who wants super thick and frothy dumpster juice with rat corpses in it? There's a better way. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly. Fly. Fly Fidelity. Fidelity. Fly Fidelity Podcast. Fly Fidelity, baby. Fidelity, baby. Fidelity. With your host, Luke Bailey. <laughs> You are listening to episode 33, featuring a conversation with Sky Zoo. On this episode, we discuss all the brilliant things, his brand new album, available now via Mellow Music. We also discuss his influences and inspiration, including Spike Lee, Jadakiss, and Mace, as well as his debut album, and so much more on this episode. Enjoy the conversation. So talk about the journey going into this album, which is an accumulation of everything you've released, of course, in the past and experienced leading up to this release. You talk about the thread this body of work has with your discography on the intro to the opening track, Free Jewelry. Where does all the brilliant things sit with your back catalogue? Uh, for me, it's it's definitely my, my favourite work. Um, it's, it's definitely at the top. You know, I, I feel like every time you drop an album, that one becomes your favorite or, you know, cause it's the most recent and it's the newest and all that stuff. But for me, I truly do feel like that with this one. Um, it, it's definitely at the top of my personal favorite list of my catalog, which is a lot of records and a lot of music, but the journey, uh, making this album, you know, it was, it was wild. It was unlike any journey I'd ever had making a record, you know, this, man, there was so many little curveballs that were thrown my way over the process of making this album so just getting to the finish line was such a such such a big deal you know for lack of a better term it was like man we finally got here because everything that could kind of get in the way started to get in the way you know and i don't know if if some of the questions you want to ask later on are kind of breaking down certain moments that you may know of but you know there was a lot that went on while i was making this record Good enough reasons Good enough reasons. Right. I made the bluest note in June of 2019. Right. So Retropolitan was done, but it wasn't out yet. No one had heard it. So Retropolitan was done, and it was being mixed by Pete and uh, Jamie. Jamie Staub, who's Pete's engineer. They were working on Retropolitan because I, I did all my stuff. You know, I'd recorded all my vocals and all that stuff. And while they were mixing, I was already working on the next project, which was the bluest note. So I went to Italy for a week. We did the bluest note in about five days or something like that. We had two days of like just hanging out and chilling. So we did the bluest note in like five days. And um, that was June 2019. And then August 2019, I started All the Brilliant Things. So it really was like nonstop. You know, I'm already working on two other projects and Retropolitan still wasn't out yet. <laughs> I mean, Retropolitan came out September 2019. So August 2019, you know, the bluest note is done and being mixed and I'm working on uh, all the brilliant things. So the first day of of recording for all the brilliant things, I had a back injury like the, that day or the day before or something like that. I pulled something in my back. And man, if you never had back pain, it's the worst thing in the world. And um, yeah. the first record I wrote and recorded was Free Jewelry. I usually start the the sessions with whatever the first song is going to be. Because in my mind, I know how the album's going to start. I know, okay, this beat is going to be the intro. This beat is going to be how this record starts. This is going to be the first song people hear. So I try to start the recording with whatever the first song is going to be, just to kind of set the tone. And then from there, I may bounce around on the records that I do. So the first record I recorded was Free Jewelry, the first record I wrote and recorded. And um, 
you know, that record, I was leaning up against the wall in the studio because my back was like in excruciating pain. So the whole time I'm rhyming, I'm leaning on the wall in the booth. You know what I mean? Like you can't tell, obviously, because you're hearing the record. But if anybody could see me, I was using the wall in the booth as a brace. And I was holding my back up against the wall while I was rhyming free jury. So it started off with a bang. You know what I mean? Like the first day was like, boom, here we go. The first day it was an issue. And I was like, oh, my God, what is going on? So, you know, then it just kept going from there. And then, um, you know, COVID happened. So I had to stop recording. COVID happened or whatever. Um, I was also working on my, damn, I was working on milestones too. I just thought about that. I was working on all this music at the same time. And then COVID hit and I couldn't record. So when I couldn't record, uh, you know, all the studios shut down. So I literally built a studio in my house right then. You know, when COVID hit in March 2020 and everybody shut down, by April 2020, I was like, yo, what is going on? I got to get in the lab. I got to work on this album. I got to work on milestones. What are we doing? And all the studios that I used were shut down. So I just went online and just ordered a ton of studio equipment. It came to the crib a couple of days later and I just built my studio. And now I record everything at my house. Everything is recorded at my home studio. So half of all the brilliant things was recorded at my home studio. So I'm, I'm done. I'm, <laughs> I'm recording everything at home moving forward. Um, so, you know, COVID hits. I had to stop recording. I started recording, like finishing recording milestones, you know, once I built the home studio. So I kind of paused all the brilliant things. I did that. Milestones came out in June of 2020. Then I got back into all the brilliant things. And then my uh, I had vocal cord surgery, so I couldn't record for a month because I couldn't speak. You know, I had vocal cord surgery in July of 2020. And there was a polyp on my vocal cord. Uh, pardon me for, you know, this story being long-winded, but I'm just giving you the whole layout. Of course. Uh, so I had a polyp on my vocal cord for about a year that I didn't really know was there until I was on tour. Me and Elzai was on tour together for Retropolitan. And I realized the polyp was on my cord because some of the shows I wasn't able to really do what I needed to do. And vocally, I just was real messed up. So I had vocal cord surgery, um, you know, which was wild because it could have it could have went bad and I could have lost, you know, my voice completely. You know, so that was a reality. But thank God the the surgeons were a one and they knocked it out, you know. So, um, you know, so I had vocal cord surgery. So I lost a month to that. And then after that, my grandmom's passed and, you know, I lost time to that because I was so broken by that. It just was crazy. man. <laughs> like it was nonstop. Even when the recording was done, we were mixing the record. And it was the last day of mixing. And I went to my man's studio where I mixed everything at my man, AJ. He mixed the album. So I'm on the way to the studio. He goes, yo, the mixes are done. I'm on the way with my hard drive so I can put everything on the drive and send it off to master. And we're done. I'm just going to pick up the files. I get to the studio and I pull up on the side of the curb. Boom. I popped the tire on my truck. Mm. So now I got to call AAA and they got to come fit. It was crazy. It was like, yo, this is the last day of the album and something else is happening. Like, it was crazy, man. Right. Like, it was, it was nonstop. But it was worth it. Long, long story short, it was worth it, man, because the album's incredible. And, it, you know, whatever you get, it's worth what you go through. Completely agree. Talk about reframing the experience of not just doing an album, but doing whatever it takes, despite the circumstances you just mentioned, to make one of the greatest albums in your career. W would you go as far to say that this album was your effort at perfection? Yeah, absolutely. But I feel like I, I go for that every time. You know, when I made In Celebration of Us, I felt like, yo, this is it. This is, this is my magnum opus. This is the one. I've had a million you know, great records in my career. I've had classics back to back and everybody feels so strongly about my music. When I made a celebration of us, I was like, oh, this is it. This is the opus. And then made Retropolitan. I was like, yo, this is, this is bananas. This is amazing. And then when I made this, I was like, no, this is the magnum opus. So, but you know what? That's what it's supposed to be. You know, you don't want your favorite artist to hit their peak, you know, and then five albums later, you're still wishing that they was back to their peak like yeah these is cool but that thing you did five years ago was everything i'm never i'm never trying to be that artist i don't ever want to be that artist man i'm the artist who every single time out the gate is better than the last time but the last time was so amazing you're like how do you do it again that's what what i strive for and and that's what thank god i've been able to accomplish and achieve uh but this album yeah i mean it, it's, it's it's absolutely wonderful man it literally is a piece of art and and what i'm doing with it 
I'm just telling a story. You know, I'm really just telling a story of what was, what is, and what it looks like it's going to be. Speaking of what was, what is, and what it looks like it's going to be, one of your influences, Miles Davis, often said he didn't play what's there, and instead he played what wasn't there. Can you speak to your intentions with this album to play as an intersection for Imagine Impossible Futures through a cultural lens? Wow, yeah, that's an awesome question. Uh, yeah, you know, I just... I feel like the question kind of answers itself in a way, um, but let me try to tackle it. I mean, I I always try to provide something for moving forward, right? So like right. you said, like playing what isn't there, you know, instead of looking at what's there, playing what isn't there. And I guess, you know, he was talking about, you know, whatever was written out in the scales and things like that. But for me as an artist, uh, as an MC, you know, when I write, I am trying to provide something for for later and for moving forward. And a lot of my stuff is stuff that you may not get in the moment, but you get it later. You know, you may not break it all down in the moment. And that that's on purpose. You know, I want you to get as much as possible on the first listen, but you're not going to get everything on the first listen because that's the way I write. You know, I write so coded and with these entendres and double and triple entendres. And I mean, on this album, there's even a quadruple entendre on rich rhetoric where there's a one line that has four meanings, you know? So like, all that stuff is on purpose. And the purpose is I want it to be worth it to the listener. If you're a listener and you you get a record, whether you bought it or you streamed it, you paid $9.99 or, or you streamed it for free or somebody let you borrow it, whatever it is, if you hear it once and you're like, oh, I got everything, I get it, I'm good, it wasn't worth your money or your time, you know? But with my records, if you're going to pay $9.99 for it or if you're going to take your time to stream it, it's something you could feel like, yo, man, years later, I'm still breaking stuff down on this record. Yeah. I'm still getting stuff from this record. And that's what makes it worth it. So even if you bought the record for $9.99 or you bought the vinyl for $29.99 or whatever it is, it's worth it because it's like, yo, man, this this is the gift that keeps on giving. You know, I, it's not like I listened to this thing once and I got it. I understood it. No, you didn't get everything yet. And that's fine. It's like a painting. You look at that painting and you see stuff. And then later on, you see more. And then later on, you see even more. And it just keeps going. And you're like, Dad, I didn't notice that color in the corner, how that affected this. And it, that's what my music does. And that's all on purpose. So, you know, I'm, I'm pushing forward for a culture where I'm hoping that this album stands as a as a test of time and a, and a piece of work that people can sit back years from now and be like, yes, guys, who told us gentrification was going to go this way? This guys, who told us cultural appropriation was going to go this way? You know, he told us on these records. Mm. And, and that's, the, that's the beauty of it. We're talking about layers. You mentioned gentrification. How do you think your work over your career has encouraged people to engage in a discourse of gentrification, understanding gentrification and producing new solutions? Well, this is the one for that. You know, I've mentioned it on certain albums. I've mentioned it here and there. You may hear a few lines on Retropolitan, a few lines on The Easy Truth, a few lines on The Celebration of Us. But this is the one album where I went all the way there. The entire album is about gentrification and cultural appropriation. And that was my goal. My goal was if I can inspire dialogue and conversation and understanding. You know, I got people from my neighborhood, you know, where I grew up in Brooklyn that don't understand the depths of uh, gentrification and what's happening to the neighborhood. They see it, they live in it every day, but they don't understand it or they don't think there's much that they can do about it to combat it. So hopefully my records are just a, a talking point and, and dialogue and information and maybe even schooling you and, and giving you some insight. And then maybe you're somebody who moved into the neighborhood who doesn't look like me and you moved into my neighborhood and you don't understand why everyone is at such an upheaval with what's going on. And then you hear this record and then you say, you know what? I understand now. I yeah. need to be more sensitive to the way that I approach my neighbors. I need to be more sensitive to the way, more cognizant to the way that I approach the people I live around and live with and share this space with. And if this record does all of those things, then it was a success. Grand slam, home run, you know? When looking for the salvation, there was a realization of a dream deferred that spawned from making music for my friends and was all in celebration of us and became all the brilliant things. Right? 
Yeah, still untwisting my capers. Still to a day till a day that I push a trade through. Still winning off of you jewels and let them bathe you. Still saw fit to force them to celebrate you. Money under the table. The beat backpacking, the theme is trap rapping and seeing what a parade do. Money under them cables. And every jewel came with a price tag as high as a pipe blast. And due to that price point, a 40 in the mule and an offer to move. Serve you and the whole layer song. Then the truth is I'm just throwing you analog. My whole catalog is like I'm shooting a spike joint. Cause when they told us say la vie, I ain't take my seat. I stood on top of that table and I sprayed my piece. And the ones who followed along is who they gave my reach. But how can I be appalled when they was raised by me? So if you wondered, I'm nothing that you say I be. Cause even if you say you get it, it's usually a layer missing. And I'm cool with all the casualties tucked in the way you listen. Word of the realities tucked in the way I picture. And all of what it be coming with. All the loyalty that's attached to who you be running with. Running since forever, so it seems. And you even so it seems are cutting them. Those that are killed for you and still don't know your government. Do you feel like growing older has given you an increased sense of urgency to make music? Absolutely. Because there's more responsibility. You know, the older you get, the wiser you get. The more you live, you learn the world, the way it moves. And you feel that responsibility. I've always felt a responsibility as an artist. You know, I've always felt like, okay, if you have a voice and you have a pen, it's on you to use it all. And I feel like if you don't use it, it's a travesty and it's almost like a sin. You know, if you have the, the capabilities to speak for people, a certain group of people, a certain sect of people, and you don't, it's a travesty, you know? So mm. as you get older, you realize it even more. So I felt that way from young. My music has always been the type of music I make now, you know, if, ever since I was 15, you know what I mean? My music has always been what I'm doing now. But as you get older, you get even deeper into it and, and you look at things a certain way, you know, and having a son and all those different things, it just makes me look at things even deeper than I may have when I was 15, when I was just no responsibilities and, you know, chasing girls and running around, getting a bacon, egg and cheese from the corner store. Now I see things differently. You know, I'm still getting a, a turkey, bacon, egg and cheese now, but I, I see things differently, you know. So, you know, I still ha I had those responsibilities then and I have them now, but I feel like they're a little deeper now. Speaking of deeper, going back to the track Free Jewelry, there's a line where you liken your catalogue to shooting a Spike Lee joint. There's this yep. deep curiosity and close attention and critical enthusiasm in a way you approach writing, and it's always been there. Do you see your work as a collaboration with your subjects, and how much is that a direct influence of Spike Lee? Oh, totally. Totally. You know, I love Spike. I mean, I made a record about him. You know, Spike Lee was my hero. Yep. I, I, I always felt like I had three maybe four heroes in life it was my dad spike lee jada kiss and probably penny hardaway penny hardaway those were my heroes growing up you know what i mean and and still are you know definitely you know my dad and, and spike and jada you know so um definitely you know I, I feel like that because my my music represents a certain neighborhood it represents a certain people a certain ilk um it, it represents a certain walk of life and um you know it, it's, it's my job to get it right you know it's really my job to get it right because when i was growing up spike got it right you know what i mean mm. like every time i would see spike it was my neighborhood on the screen whether it was do the right thing or you know i, I crooklyn it was my neighborhood it was my people it was my stories even though i was a little kid you know i was a little kid when a lot of those movies came out and he became my hero early on. You know, I was 10 years old when my dad took me to see Malcolm X and he made me write a book report about it. I was 10. So I've been connecting to Spike since I was, you know, a kid, right. you know, so it, it just, it just rolls with me. And I always wanted to do that musically. I always wanted to be somebody who, you know, when they made music, the music spoke to a certain group of people and it was relatable to other people and it showed people who weren't from that walk of life what it was like and it helped them to have better understanding you just got to get it right you know if you're going to do it you got to do it for real you know and, and that's what i strive for he's been called the most gifted young director to emerge in years breathtakingly original and the most passionate most powerful new filmmaker of our time this summer, Universal Pictures presents a new film from Spike Lee. You want me to save your life? Yes. That's what you're asking me. I want me. you to save my life. 
Academy Award winner Denzel Washington in Spike Lee's Mo Better Blues. Rated R. Starts Friday, August 3rd at theaters everywhere. Since we're talking about visuals and the influence of Spike Lee, why is it that you think Mo Better Blues gets left out the narrative as often as it does when it comes to the influence it had on rap videos? I don't know, man, but but man, it is one of my favorite movies ever. My three favorite movies of all time is Do the Right Thing, Mo Better Blues, and Goodfellas. Classic. Those are my favorite movies of all time. Yeah, those are three movies. Anytime that they're on, if they're just randomly on TV, I could stop what I'm doing and just watch them. You know, Mo Better is amazing. Mo Better is the reason why I love jazz the way I love it. Oh, you know, really? It, it, yeah, absolutely. You know, it started with my pops, but my pops was listening to jazz and I was a little kid and I, I just was silly and didn't care. You know, I remember telling my dad I thought it was stupid. I was like, yo, this music is stupid. They don't even have words, you know, because I was always a writer. I've been a writer since I was five, six years old, even before I started rapping. So everything for me was about writing and the story and what was being said and how you said it and what it meant. So I said, man, this music is stupid, man. They don't even have words. And I remember he said, man, when you get older, you're going to love and appreciate this stupid music. I, I bet you you will. And. Lord knows, man, it came full circle. So he started it with all of that. But I started to pay attention when I got older watching Mo Better Blues, you know, and I, I saw it as a, a little kid and didn't really pay much attention. But when I really grasped it, it was I was like 19 when I saw it again. And it just it hit me like a, uh, a bow and arrow, man. It hit me like a harpoon. And I was done. And the first jazz purchases I made CDs. I bought a Love Supreme and Kinda Blue on CD. And that was it. I was stuck. That was it. I didn't want anything to do with anything else. I just wanted jazz. And now I have one of the dopest jazz vinyl collections people have ever seen. People come to my house and freak out. And I mean, older guys that are like my dad's age, they come to my house and we sit back and drink Hennessy and they look and they go, yo, why do you have all of this? How, how do you have all of this? How do you have the the originals of all this stuff like my jazz knowledge and collection is better than theirs and they're twice my age you know like that's where i'm at with it so it was my dad and then it was mo better so mo mo better is everything man i might watch it tonight when we get off the phone you know yeah me too why not why not and of course your son was named after miles davis wasn't he absolutely can you speak to the influence you know your dad had on yourself as an artist growing up and the mirror that holds to the experience of creating this project, as well as the two EPs you released last year? Well, my dad didn't have an influence on me as an artist. He had an influence on me as a man, uh, as a black boy growing up to be a black man. My dad doesn't have a musical bone in his body. Okay. Um, he, he, he doesn't make music. He never made music. He doesn't have any musical talent. He loves music. You know, he loves yeah. jazz and he likes hip hop, but my musical gifts are it's all god it's not like oh man you know your mother was a singer your father was a poet so you got it in you like nah like you know my my mom my dad they don't have a musical bone in their body i'm really first generation with you know my musical endeavors um my dad influenced me as a man and and as a black boy growing up to be a black man and just how to, it definitely as a father and a leader and, you know, all of that type of stuff. And I guess that kind, that stuff bleeds into the music because it, it helped me make music the way I make it. So I guess we could say that. But with my music, he's just a fan like, oh, man, word, you got some new stuff out. Yeah, it sounds really good. You know, like my dad doesn't have a musical bone in his body. You know, uh, th- this was all me. This was all me growing up in the neighborhood, growing up in the building and hearing everybody rapping and seeing Chi Ali on TV and and being around the older guys and having it in me. It's God given. God saying, yo, here you go. Nobody in my house ever said, yo, go rap. In fact, my dad wasn't even really too crazy about me doing it when I was a kid because I was a kid, you know, and he wanted me to focus on school and focus on having a career that was more guaranteed and less of a a, a dice roll. And so my dad wasn't, when I was a little kid, my dad wasn't really crazy about me saying, I'm going to be a rapper. I'm going to be a rapper when I was like in junior high, you know, like he wasn't really that crazy about it, but I know why he wasn't. It wasn't because he didn't believe it was because I was a kid and he wanted me to be, listen, my job is to make sure you succeed and you make it and you're good. Music is a dream. 
you know, being a doctor, being a lawyer, being a dentist, being a, uh, you know, whatever, being a firefighter, be, you know, whatever, owning a, a slew of stores, that's guaranteed. You know, being a musician is is a, a dice roll. So he did what he had to do. And I respect it. Grown, you know, once I grew up, I was I understood why he wasn't super crazy about me doing that. But once I got older and I started really making some noise, he understood. And he was like, oh, this this is real. You you actually know what you're doing. This is real. OK, bet. Go for it. Go kill it. And he's my biggest fan now. Can you remember the first song you played your dad that really gave you that validation to, you know, keep on and keep innovating? I don't remember the song. Um, it just was like there was always so much interest around me when I was a kid. You know, like when I was like 15, you know, Bad Boy was calling my house, you know, um, you know, reps from Bad Boy was calling my house looking for me. And like when I would be out in the street, people knew me because of killing it in the park and the ciphers and all that stuff. And that's when my dad knew it was kind of real. You know, when I was running around, like, I got a show tonight, I got a show tonight. And there was little talent shows at 16, 17. But when he saw, I wouldn't stop. He was like, you know, when, when he, he saw, yo, man, this, this kid won't stop. No matter what I say, he's going for it. Or when I'm in my room and he looks in my room at one in the morning and I'm 14 and I'm writing in a notebook when I should be asleep, that's when it was like, he he's really serious about this. Okay, cool. You know, um, I don't remember the song or the moment though that made him say, "You know what? He actually is really, really great." I actually don't remember. I wish I did, but I actually don't remember that. Maybe he does. That's fair. That's fair. We talked about this album being, of course, a full circle moment for you in many ways. When we go back, speaking of your back catalogue, what kind of relationship do you have with your debut, The Salvation, which you released on Duckdown 12 years ago yesterday? Yep. Um, yeah, Jam the Duckdown. Yeah. Um, man, it's my first joint. You know, that's, they say you take your whole life to make your first album, yeah. you know, and that's very, very true. Because the moment you start making music, all you could think about is, man, when I get my record deal, my first album is going to be like this. And it's going to be like that. And I want to get so-and-so on it. And I want to get such-and-such on it. And it's going to be great. You know, <laughs> like, that's um, that's the first thing you think about. So that's why they say it takes your whole life to make your first album. So for me, that was the first joint. You know, Cloud Nine was not my first album. You know, it was an EP that I made in three days with Ninth Wonder to get the ball rolling and, and turn the temperature up and get hot. Yeah. You know, um, my first album was The Salvation. And it, it was a wonderful time. I remember... All the sessions, I remember the mix sessions, the recording, I remember the photo shoot, the artwork, just putting everything together, the rollout, the campaign, the videos. I did everything. That whole thing was my brainchild. Every moment. It was it was my brainchild, you know, and um, I'm extremely proud of it. And it stood the test of time. I mean, the vinyl goes for like 300 on Discogs right now. Like, I think I have one copy. You know, people always hit me like, yo, I got to get the vinyl and. I, I think I literally have like one for myself, you know? So it's just like, it stood the test of time and people go, man, I was in high school when I heard that. I was in junior high when I heard that. I was in college when I heard it and it shaped my life and it, it helped me go this way and it helped me go through so much stuff and it helped me succeed and get through so much stuff. And that's what you make music for, man. You make the music for those reasons and you get paid because of those reasons and then you go home happy. That's the plan, you know? Singing the dramatics and playing with ready rock Usually it seems like he waiting to catch a drop You clinging to his habits, he's saving you from a spot Round the wave work, jewels in the crown Hit the pay dirt, love is love, you in good hands Dennis Haysburg, openly protected by who you be neck and neck with See you looking over like look at what they done made work Circle in the block, I know your call before you start Put your phone down, Pierre Moss to the hall Word the hall of that, love it or leave it, we afforded that 20D batteries, count them wrong you talked about the myriad of reasons why this album was so challenging to create in its earlier stages. What about the beginning in terms of collaboration? 
as a backbone for this release, was it challenging to drive a collective and collaborative spirit for this release around the circumstances of isolation when you first started recording it? Oh, with the new one? With the new one. Yeah, it was, um, you know, what well, is really, well, there's some features, but there's no rap features, but every everything was done, you know, digitally. You know, everything was emails from Raheem Devon, Hooks, BJ Chicago Kid, and Black Soul, and, you know, everybody who's on it. Everything was emailed and a lot of that stuff is because of covid a lot of it is also because that's just the era we live in nowadays but um you know it didn't take away from the process you know it it didn't take away from the process of making something great you know as far as the production there's a lot of different producers on the album but the best thing about it which people tell me every day they're like man you can't tell that there's a bunch of different producers you sound like you really can it, it sounds like one producer made the entire album you know, um, and, and that's the goal that that's what it's about. It sounds like one producer made it because that's the cohesion. And that's me being a producer as well as an artist where I can produce an album. Right. I can right. sit there and say, OK, these beats make sense together. These sounds, these, you know, the way these stories are being told, this makes sense together. So let's do that. You know, as opposed to, yo, I got a joint that sound like this. Then I got a joint that sound like that. Then I got this joint that sound like this because, you know, I got to touch that market. It's not about that. It's about the whole thing being a story. You know, you go to a restaurant. If you go to a Chinese restaurant, you don't want them serving tacos and, you know, uh, uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you, you're going for Chinese. You know, you know, you go to a soul food restaurant. You don't want them bringing out pizza. You're going for what you're going for. So you ain't going to come to my restaurant and get soul food and pizza and Chinese and Mexican and Greek and Italian. No, you're going to get what you came for. You know, let's talk about this new album in terms of maintaining a tonality and texture. What were the specific qualities you were looking for in each of these features when it came to collaborating? Oh, man, the qualities. Um, Just just records that spoke to me as far as the production. I just wanted the beats that spoke to me. You know, I always felt like the beats tell me what to do. So even if I have the concept, I have a concept in mind. I say, man, I'm going to do a record about, you know, cultural appropriation i'm looking for a certain beat that that says that before i even jump on it so then when i hear that beat it becomes culturish you know so like that's just an example you know but a lot of times um the beat will speak to me and i I just want the stories and the cohesion to be right so that's kind of what i'm looking for and then from an artist standpoint I already have a vision in mind of like what I want the sound to be. So I start thinking, well, who has that sound, right? Okay. Mm, who sounds good on this? Who sounds good with this type of vibe? Oh, BJ, the Chicago kid. Okay, let's do it. And then you move on. Okay. Who would sound good with this? Okay. Raheem Devon. Okay, let's do it. You know, so that's, it, it's, it's always about it being cohesive. It has to make sense. Yeah. Yeah. These collaborations really feel like some of your deepest collaborations in your career today. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I dig that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that that's that's a good way to put it, for sure. You know, a lot of it is all just, like I said, I, I have this vision and I kind of just drive the car. Even like with some of those hooks, you know, like Raheem wrote his hook for um Something to Believe in. Uh, BJ wrote his hook for um, Bodega Flowers. On Soft Eyes, Black Soul and I wrote that hook together. So, you know, um, I have a vision and I'll express the vision to them and then they'll go get busy. And then sometimes I'll go behind them and be like, okay, I want to flip this and turn it into this. And I I may rewrite half the hook or the whole hook or whatever, but it all comes together seamlessly. And if it doesn't, it's not going to be on the album, you know. And of course, everybody has to be on the same page creating this project with you. They have to almost understand what it feels like to be in your shoes, to be in Brooklyn. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's crazy the way like I, I call those moments um, with those moments. I, I say it's like God walked in the room. You know, it's like God walked in a room and left a little sprinkle and walked out because it all just comes together. So perfect. You know, it's like this was made to be like Raheem was made to be on that. This was made for BJ to be on that. You know, like mm. they all come together so seamlessly. So those are the moments where I feel like you know, God walked in the room and left a little sprinkle on the table and walked out, you know, so that it just, it works. As long as it works, I'm with it. If it don't work, we're not doing it. Exactly. What was the inspiration behind the tour of the neighborhood? Oh man, it's, it's kind of in the title, you know, um, with the album, I wanted it to be a story where 
it starts with the way the neighborhood was. And by the end of the album, it shows you what the neighborhood is. Yeah. So I wanted it to be a story of the ups and downs and how that went. It's almost like a roller coaster ride, how we got from A to Z and all the letters in between. So that's why that record's at the beginning of the album, because I'm explaining, like, this is what the neighborhood was. So what I'm saying in the song, the idea is that there's a, a couple that's looking at apartments in the neighborhood. And, you know, it, it's it's a, a young couple that doesn't look like me, you know, young white couple they heard about the neighborhood and they're excited about it. And their realtor told them to, to come to the neighborhood and check out some apartments. And I'm there and I'm like, oh, y'all want to see the neighborhood? Let me show it to you. So the idea behind it is this is what the neighborhood used to be. And if you don't treat the neighborhood right, it can always turn back into that. Hmm. If you don't respect the people who have been here, it can always turn back into that. Don't think it's over with. Because these people still live here. These people are still around. And all we want is love and appreciation and affection. But if you do us wrong, we could turn back into what this used to be 15, 20 years ago. When it was, you know, when everybody thought it, you know, they, they, my neighborhood was ready to die. You know, it was Biggie ready to die. That, that album is made about my neighborhood, you know, because we from a block apart. Ready to die is about my neighborhood. All those stories on there happened in my neighborhood. So if you come into wow. my neighborhood now to move in, that's fine because the neighborhood has changed. But it can still go back to that if you don't treat it right, if you don't treat the people right, because it was that. You can always go back to who you are. You were who you, you, were, who you were before you got here, like Jay-Z said. You know what I mean? Praise up to the most up high for black up tempos, yo. Hardest shit you can come by. Chocolate in the air off the stoop when we would run by. But custies get too high, fuck around, it's a mighty gun rise. Regular shit, lean on the head of the whip. Know your block live when out of town is one rep where you live. All that you need could be all the reach if you go for real. Down to say hi to a hole in self or you blow a cell, you know it well. Going back to Big, you mentioned those stories. That was yourself as a kid. Yep. Junior Mafia. Pointing at you, talking about you on the street. That was real life situations around yourself and your friends as a kid. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, yeah. We used to, um, man, we used to sit on the steps trading basketball cards 13, 12 years old, and little Kim would walk by. Wow. You know what I mean? Like, we would walk to the store, and, you know, Junior Mafia would be shooting dice while we, you know, dribbling the basketball down the corner. That was normal. You know, that was normal to us because we because we saw them like that before they were stars. We didn't know them right. because we was kids. Right. Like what what 20 year old is hanging out with an 11 year old? Nobody. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like that, that doesn't happen. But, you know, those little bad kids running around. Oh, the little kids, uh, the little kids up the block. Y'all the little knuckleheads. That was us. You know, so we we dribbling the ball down the block or play fighting or real fighting or you know, sharing a hero sandwich or whatever. And it was Junior Mafia shooting dice. You know, those was the OGs. It was, you know, Biggie and them sitting on, on the step, smoking the L, leaning on the Lexus, smoking the L. Like, that was our neighborhood. I you know, that. little Kim walking by, just going to the store by herself. That was our neighborhood. You know, we was little kids. Like, oh, there go Kim. And we just keep doing what we're doing. You know, like, that was us. I love that. And you also mentioned Mace being a big influence back then for yourself coming up. Huge, and shaping your style. Huge. Talk about that Absolutely. influence, man. Man, I love Mace. I love murder, man. I don't, I don't let people talk bad about Mace. You know, re people people see my music and the way I, I make my music and what I talk about. And my music has more of a quote-unquote underground feel, you know, quote-unquote backpack feel, which I don't even like the term. But, you know, that's the crowd that has been drawn to my music, which is fine. But there's also a whole other side that's been drawn to my music as well. And a lot of that is because I grew up on guys like Mace and the Locks and all of them. And Mace taught me how to write songs from afar. You know, I never met Mace, but he taught me how to write songs because, you know, when I was in junior high and high school, all I did was just rap. You know, I'd go in the lunchroom and have a thousand bars every day and just go crazy. And my man is banging on the table and I'm just rapping, killing everybody. I'm standing in the park in the cold in a circle, just killing everybody. And... I used to write verses where it would be 26 bars, 40 bars. You know what I'm saying? It would be, uh, you know, 56 bars. It would be so random. It would be such a weird number. I would just write until I felt like I said enough. And then I heard Mace. 
you know, and I heard the locks and all of them, but it was really when Mace album dropped, it was, you know, intro, verse, hook, verse, hook, bridge, pre-hook, post-hook. And I learned all that stuff. And I learned all that stuff from listening to Mace from Harlem World, from his first album. And I, I was I was done. I was like, yo, this, this dude is incredible. His lyricism, his demeanor, his swag, being able to rap street stuff, being able to rap girl stuff, being able to rap party stuff, and all of it be from a certain space. He was fly. He was ill. I was like, yo, that's it. Like, So I learned a lot from Mace. I learned a lot from Jadakiss. Like I said, Jadakiss is one of my heroes, you know? So like, I learned a lot from those guys. A lot of my songwriting, though, like the skill, knowing how to write a song, a lot of that came from Mace. Paper made, trying to poke something. Bag on me, I can float something. Doc don't act like the boat coming. Plug paid, I don't owe nothing. Thank God how the snow coming. Thank God how the stove jumping. Name another tag team, next stand still. Show run it, see, far as the drip. Know that I got it to give. Cop work with a go, y'all. Treated as part of the flip. Drug sales come with shooters. And model bitches the maneuver. Y'all made it cool to be the user. So I get paid and be the loser. Fuck it. Type of time my eye on. Clock leader like the people I grew up with and my, my friends and the guys I grew up with every day, those are the guys that are in and out of jail. Those are the guys that, you know, got busy in the street. Those are the guys that some of them aren't here no more. I didn't grow up with guys that was listening to some of the stuff I was listening to. You know, like my friends didn't know what Slum Village was. They didn't know what, you know what I'm saying? Like they didn't know all that stuff. Mm. You know, I was putting them on. Like, yo, you got to listen to Jay Dilla. Yo, you got to listen to Little Brother. Yo, you got to listen to, you know, they didn't know what none of that was, you know, because they was in the street. They was listening to, you know, the locks and Dipset and G-Unit. And I was listening to that stuff, too. You know, I was all about the mixtapes and Clue and, you know, all that stuff, man. I was the king of Clue tapes. I had every one, you know. I was listening to the locks and State Property and, and Dipset and all that stuff. And if we go back even earlier, you know, of course... Big Con and Mob Deep and all that stuff. But then I was also listening to Tribe Called Quest. Mm. And I was listening to, you know, De La Soul. And I was listening to Slum Village. And I was listening to Little Brother, you know, after college and all that stuff. And my friends wasn't listening to all that. So I was putting them on. So I was in the middle. You know, I was caught between those two worlds. And that's why I make music the way I make it. You know, you come to one of my shows, it's backpackers, it's skateboarders, it's model chicks is street dudes you know uh who 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 make their living outside in the street it's all these different like types of people you know that when you come to my show that's because my music embodies all of those worlds because that's the world i'm from you know the world i'm from didn't know nothing about slumville and 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 tribe called quest and all that the world i'm from was you know what was going on outside but Mm. i was listening to that other stuff as well and I just got stuck in the middle and I loved it. You know, I was listening to Black Star and I was listening to, you know, uh, you know, like we said, Mace, you know, right. who's a Black Star fan and a Mace fan at the same time? <laughs> Nobody but me, you know. Both sides of the coin, of course. What was the energy right. behind What Money Taught Us? I think it's an overlooked track on the album and it says a lot more than people are picking up. Yeah, that one is loaded. That one is loaded with lines and and, and meaning and layers. Um, My style is like I come up with the titles first. So I'll sit down and write, you know, a a list of song titles. And then I'll just go from there. So that was one of the titles I had. Like, I just thought it was a cool title. You know, I just one day it just hit me what money taught us. And I just said to myself, you know, this is what money taught us, the type of shit money taught us. And it just stuck. And I was like, damn, that's a cool title. And I wrote it down. And then I just built it around that, you know. And conceptually, it's me wrapping up everything as far as all the gentrification stuff, the cultural appropriation stuff, and how that affects us and our neighborhoods and our people and our culture and and our upbringing and who we are and, and what our future may look like. And it's just a combination of all those things. And I'm talking about everything from Virgil and Off-White and Candace Owens and you know, just being outside in the street and just so many different things that are touched on with that. You know, the Black Panther Party and the paintings on the stained glass made them not believe you, you know, overturn underneath you. I'm just talking about like how when you come from where I'm from, you stop believing in church. You stop believing in this idea of Christianity. And I'm not knocking that at all. My whole family 
is is Christian based and based in Christianity. But when you come from where I'm from, you know, you go to you you, you go to church and you see these these stained glass, the paintings on the stained glass. I'm talking about Jesus and all of the paintings that are on the stained glass in the church. You know, the paintings on that stained glass made them not believe you like they looking up at that. Like, yeah, I don't believe in this no more because of what I'm going through. That's the world I come from where guys feel like that. So I'm just talking about so many things in that record that, like you said, people haven't caught it yet. But they will, you know, the 15, 20 years, they will. And, and some college course will be broken down on that one song. And, yep. you know, boom, boom. You know what I mean, and, and, and that's where we at. This is the beautiful thing about the project. How do you think living in Atlanta has shifted your creative lens and pushed your pen? It's cool because it's, it's peaceful. You know, I get to just sit home and just write and record. My music is still based on where I'm from, based on New York, based on my upbringing, based on who I am now. So I mentioned the move and things like that sometimes, even on Retropolitan, you know, I said I took it to a five bedroom mini mansion in a cul-de-sac, prestigious subdivision. I brought my son to that, you know, so I mentioned it. But I tell people all the time, man, I'm like, yo, I don't got to live in New York to make the most New York album ever. Right. I lived in New York for 35, 36 years. You know what I'm saying? Like, I got enough New York stories to last me a lifetime. <laughs> I, don't, I don't ever got to step foot in New York again, and I'll still be the most New York person. I got enough New York stories to last me forever. I know that city, the like the back, front, and side of my hand. <laughs> I mean, and that's a blessing for me because I love where I'm from. You know, regardless of me not living there right now, not living there anymore, and making a move because I felt like it was better for my family, wanting to be able to buy a house and own some stuff and land and property and raise my family here, my son and all that. I love where I'm from, man. I love my city, greatest city in the world, you know. I love Atlanta, too. Atlanta's been beautiful to me. Love my city, though. Greatest city in the world, New York, baby. You know, as, as rough as it is, as much as they pricing us out, as bad as gentrification has gotten, as expensive as it is, which is ridiculously asinine, I still love my city, man. My, I, I pop up home. It's like I never left. There's people in yeah. New York who don't even know I moved. Because really? when they see me, because because I'm still there so much, I'm there every month, a couple times a month. So there's people that don't even know I left. Yo, Scott, what up? Boom, boom. They don't even realize I'm not there because I'm still there and my presence is still felt. Right. And I love my city, man. I love home. Speaking of presence, what kind of conversations do you want this project to evoke with the artistic and political potential featured on it? Oh man, I, I, everything we said, everything like you just mentioned, the artistic and political component of it. You know, I want people to hear it and think about where they live, where they from, what it's like now. Has it changed? How they can prevent it from changing? How they can own a piece of it? How they can give back? It's not just about stopping what's coming in, but it's about giving back. Okay, if they want to clean up the neighborhood for these reasons, how can we clean up the neighborhood for our reasons? So instead of them cleaning up the neighborhood just to move us out and move other people in, how can we clean up the neighborhood while keeping us in the neighborhood? You know, so those are the type of conversations that I want this project to have. I pray to the death of me, long as there's breath in me, God keep blessing me, even when the devil be testing me. To all my soldiers in the field, run the marathon for the win. The world is yours and that's the reason That ain't something I give you something to believe in Something to believe in Serenade a stimulus Running through a precinct They sent my brother a check when he was doing a stretch We laugh like fuck it If they dumb enough you keep it It's just the way you seen it All these visions of grandeur Call it what you needed Caught you lifting your hands up All of us were reaching Back and forth how they panned us All of this could be with their arms reach If you stand up See the well Close enough where if you see a cell, you can reenact heavy lash down to the key itself. Beautifully attached till at last try to redeem itself. Cause copying keys turn to obvious leads. I done seen what it's coming with when they was off the ground. Pardon me, how I be hovering and making all these rounds. I be speaking for who come from it, straightening they crown. And a speech and a discussion that can tame all this shit down. Worth the wages and amounts and aiming file the gift box. We a product of ziplocks. They a product of What about your younger audience, the younger fans? What advice would you offer the younger? generation who want to change and be the best version of themselves what's the easiest way to pay tribute to personal transformational power and leadership without looking back and looking forward i tell these kids all the time that are coming up you know i say listen man you gotta love it 
because there's so much that happens within it that it can push you to the point where you're like, yo, I'm done. You know, if, if you love the music, the things that happen within it, you'll be fine. You know, it, you may be upset today and not want to make music anymore, but then before you know it, you'll bounce back. But the love is the only thing that's going to keep you around because there's so much that happens in this game. There's so much that happens with the way the industry is run. Mm. It's enough to make you be like, yo, man, I ain't doing this no more. I've been in here a couple months. I'm out of here. This ain't worth it. But if you love it, it's worth it. So the love is what's going to push you to stay in it. The love is what's going to push you to remain creative and wanting to give back. And your purpose and your reason is going to come from the right place. You know, we we all want to make money. You know, you'd be lying if you said you got into this and didn't want any money. You know, that's that's stupid and idiotic. Yeah. But it's like at what cost, right? So some people say, yo, man, at whatever cost, I'll do whatever, say whatever, I'll get on whatever record, I'll stir up whatever controversy, I'll do whatever. I'm not like that. I ain't built like that. I'm built the other way where I'm like, you know what? I'm going to get it and I'm going to make money and I'm going to be successful and I'm going to be able to provide for my family. But I'm going to also be able to look in the mirror with every record I make and every move I make. You know what I mean? So it's all about what you want from it and how you want to go about it. Absolutely. Now, the album closes with the track Soft Eyes, which is a reference to the title of an episode of The Wire. What are your memories of Michael Kenneth Williams as an artist who, like yourself, was able to transcend and shape the culture with such poetic gravitas? Oh, man, he, he was amazing, man. Brooklyn guy, of course, you know, and um, he was amazing, man. Utterly amazing. You know, the, the way he was able to make you forget about who he was and just get lost in his character, whether it was Omar Little or Chalky White or, you know, like so many things that he was able to do over his career. Brooklyn guy defied the odds. I mean, no one would ever think a dark-skinned guy with a gash across his face, like 15 inches long, would ever be able to make it as a, a superstar in Hollywood. And not just black Hollywood, but Hollywood, period. No one would ever think that. No one would ever assume that. No one would ever predict that. So he was able to just defy the odds and transcend so much. And um, his work just speaks volumes. You know, he, he was amazing. I actually met him. Uh, my man was his barber, was his go-to barber in Brooklyn. My man, Sincere, shout to him. Um, and I met him through my man, Sin. You know, we, we met at the barbershop once and we kicked it and built on some things. And, you know, he was hip to the music and all that. And this was years and years ago. But, um, yeah, he was a super cool dude, man. And uh, we we built, you know, we, we was my plan was to work on some other things with him. But um, obviously, you know, we, we didn't get there. But it was awesome to just to be able to vibe with him and build with him and, and, and just have that connection and get some game from him, you know, and, and know that he was tapped in on the music, too. Like he, he knew what it was. So, you know, it was dope, man. And, and he was an absolute legend. What's next for yourself? Have you thought as far ahead as any other projects? Have you started writing for the next project yet? I haven't yet. You know, I've been brainstorming. I've been brainstorming on what I want to do and what might be next and kind of some ideas and things like that conceptually. But, you know, I'm not all the way there yet as far as ready to start something. Still trying to figure out what the plan is going to be. I'm just so excited about this album and I just want to give this album as much life as possible. You know, it's only been out, what, almost four months, June, July, almost four months, you know? So it's been three and a half months and it's crazy, you know? So I'm like, man, nah, you know, I, I want to make sure that the album, you know, gets the legs that it deserves and just can yeah. run and let it run as far as it can. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm just focused on continuing to pump the album videos, shows, tours, promo, things of that nature you know i just want to continue to push it yeah yeah to give it like you say that deeper impact and bigger audience you know in the long run and you know normalize promoting an album after 12 months which is what we should be doing now yeah no absolutely you know we grew up in an era i'm you know i feel like you and i are from the same generation we grew up in an era where you know you dropped every two years every three years yeah you know, you drop a record. Nas dropped in 94, then he dropped in 96, then he dropped in 99. You know, Big dropped in 94, then he dropped in 97. You know, like, that was the era we grew up in, you know. Jay-Z changed that, you know what I mean? And it's not necessarily a bad thing as long as you do it right. Jay-Z changed that. He made it where you drop every single year. You know, he was the first person, he went on a, a what, maybe a seven, eight-year run of every single year. He dropped a full-length album 
and toured and did this and did that and came right back. And he changed the landscape where everybody was like, yo, I got to drop every year. That's cool if you're able to do that. You know, Jay-Z was able to do that. He was talented enough to do that. A lot of these people aren't, you know. And But then the fans are like, yo, man, I just heard your album. It's crazy. When you dropping the next one? And it's like, what? It just <laughs> dropped. <laughs> you know I mean, like, yo, listen to it, grasp it, understand it, love it or hate it, whatever it is. But just get understand it, get familiar with it. You know, yo, we listen to Illmatic for two years. You know, we listen to Ready to Die for three years. <laughs> I mean, like now heads listen to something for three weeks and keep it moving. They like, yo, what's up? What's next? What you got? What you got? Bro, I just spent a year making that record. You got to spend a year listening to it. <laughs> you know what I mean, like at least, you know, so, but, but that's, that's just the generation. That's where we at. There's also a tendency for people to hang on to the past. And, you know, there's, there's this concept of nostalgia um, that people use as a, as a cultural currency to sometimes depend on to fix their creativity or, you know, their joyous fans. Yeah, no, totally, totally. I mean, I'm somebody who loves reflecting and loves nostalgia and you know obviously you can tell in my music i talk a lot about when i was 13 i talk about when i was 16 i talk about when i was in my 20s you know as well as where i'm at now in my 30s you know so i'm somebody who thrives off of nostalgia built a career off of it there's an elevation Um, in how you do it though isn't there exactly that that and that's where i was going i'm glad you caught that before i even had to break it down you know a lot of people they get stuck in the past and the music sounds like the past. So they, you know, I want some beats that sound like 93 and I don't do that. You know, I make, I make music where it's like if 95, 96, cause to me, 95 is the greatest year ever. I make music where if it was 95 and that sound never died. So what would 95 sound like? Well, well, what would the, pardon me, what would the sound be like if, what was happening in 95, 96 just continued to grow and elevate and never Mm. was pushed out the door. So it's like a child. If that child grew up, you know, you may have a child that, you know, something happens to him early on and he's no longer here. What would that child be like if if that didn't happen and he grew up into an adult? That's what my music is. Mm. What would 95 be like if it never got pushed out the door and it just continued to grow up and grow up and elevate and have a growth spurt and go through puberty, you know what I mean? And and become an adult. What would that sound like? That's my music. My music isn't stuck in 95. It's a growth and elevation of 95 for current day. That's what my music is. If we're talking about inspiration, obviously it goes without saying travel has a big role in the music you make. What about traveling to the UK anytime soon in the future after man, this madness? Man, I, I wish. I, I can't wait, man. I've... You know, I've been in London multiple times doing shows. Every time I do a show in London, the turnout is great. But it's been way too long since I've been to London. I literally love that place, man. I tell people all the time, my favorite places in the world, if, if we're not talking about New York and, and being home, is London and South Africa, man. I absolutely love London. I don't know what it is about it, but I could, I could move there tomorrow. I really could. I could, I could move there tomorrow. And just take a bunch of Ubers because I don't know how to drive on the right side. You know what I mean? <laughs> but like, you know, um, man, the Ribena, the Lion Bars, the Nando's, like I'm with it all. You know what I mean? Like I'm with it all. I love London, man. It's something that you guys do. It's something you guys have. I feel like I'm home when I'm there. You know, I never want to leave. Every time I'm there, I'm mad that I got to go to the airport. We're looking forward to you coming back, man. Thank you, man. As soon as COVID and all this stuff gets where we need to be. I will be there, man. I can't wait. I appreciate your time. appreciate you doing this. It's been a long time coming. Thanks for everything you do. Oh, absolutely, man. Thanks for pressing play. Thanks for having me. And thanks for all the insight on the questions, man. We just wanted to live. They told us to counting up something. Seems is the only way you can live. Yeah. With a guy, we just wanted to live. They 
tell us to counting up something Seems the only way you can live In love with a mattress that was somewhat out of place Went through the old habits, it could double as a chase Talking major key, let it cut you out of case Or try and run the city till it run you out of state Told us all of this straight, and it's worth what you wait on Staring at the exit like, yo, I ain't trying to stay long Kitchen table decorator, situate a plate on Jesus, heavy as the head, the crown lay on But all of this is straight, running out of state is what you play for And stay for to turn to what you leave for Get your 16 on, like talking Mic check, throw the beat on, or talking about a key, but being 20 OZ short, 16 ain't enough. Andre features as quick as you could be on, you'll be gone. Waiting on a detail, couple U turns the way you be. I wish I could show my appreciation for this podcast. I wish I could respond to it somehow or be notified in the future when Fly Fidelity updates because it's so great, but I don't think there's a way I can do any of those things. Uh oh, you're wrong. <laughs> Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. My people, are you with me where you were?